Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode eight. The first settler. Chris, so we're here with episode eight. Bonjour, Patrick. Comment allez-vous? C'est bien, n'est-ce pas? I know bonjour is hello, but that's about the extent, and you maybe said hello, have a good day or something, I don't know. And why why am I speaking French to you? Well, you're right. You're on the mark because that first settler, he -hmm. speaks French, he probably also speaks English and maybe several Mm -hmm. other Native American dialects, and... He's not English. That's key. Absolutely not. not. And he's not American, although he becomes an American later on. He is not British, he's not American, but he's a Chicagoan who speaks French of Haitian background. And he's, he's his own man. He's the first permanent Chicagoan. That's right. The first settler, Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable. And he lives and works right on the Chicago River yeah. by the lakefront. Right where the Chicago Tribune building is. That was his farm. We finally got out of the canoes, Patrick. We, <laughs> we've been canoeing for episodes. Well, it's all been about the waterways, and that's how people got to Chicago. And, and we've talked about the French explorers and the people that have passed through Chicago first. That's a callback to our first episode, who was first, about yeah. Jean Nicolette. And we go into more French explorers in the following couple, three episodes. Two guys named Marquette and Joliet. Yeah, episode seven, that 1973 reenactment that was done. And we then reference back to Marquette and Joliet's trip. Yeah. And prior to that, we also talk about LaSalle, who passes through Chicago several times, and that's uh, also reenacted 1976 in episodes four and five. So we encourage you to listen to those if you haven't already. And Patrick, what do they all have in common, those men that you just mentioned? Well, they're all French, right? They're from France. Yes. Let's point out that these explorers were all white men. Yes. And the fellow we're about to talk about, he spoke French. And Native American, and Native American, and probably English as well, and, and he lived in a French-controlled territory, right? Right. So, but he wasn't born in France. No, and and there's right. some question about where he is born. So right. that's kind of an interesting element to this speculation, which we'll get into. And he's here for several years. The settlement of Chicago officially begins. There's, yes, there are documents that say he was here in 1785, I believe. Right. So that's really early. Right. It was right after the Revolutionary War. We'd had a peace with the British. Yeah. Treaty of Paris. The uh, settlers were not supposed to be west of the Alleghenies at that point. And that land was sort of Indian territory. This was all controlled by the French, who obviously had access to this region through the Great Lakes and the river system. We should say controlled by the Native Americans, but the French influence... And French sovereignty was what was considered from yeah. Western civilization standpoint. And, and the native peoples liked buying things with the furs. This was a... The, the cap- trade was important. Trade sure. was important, and you could get some great hatchets uh, for beaver pelts. Right. This is replacing stone daggers and, mm-hmm. and flints and bows and arrow with the use of gunpowder and... Muskets. Muskets and yeah. copper pans and yeah. clothing. Yeah, this uh, changes was this, huge. this changes the paradigm for the native peoples. Right. So suddenly they're thrust into the 17th, 18th centuries. They go from the Stone Age basically in, into the age of gunpowder. So now we're out of the canoes, on land, and permanency of Chicago, which will lead us up into it becoming a village, a town, and then later a city. Yeah, it begins with him, Jean-Baptiste Pointe-Sable. There's no denying it. There's no ambiguity to this. So let's get into it and learn all about who really started Chicago. Tribune. 
You asked about Point de Sable. He was the first permanent settler in Chicago. Because I got curious about him, and I did an awful lot of research about him. And one of the things that sticks with me is the work that you did for that book, Early Chicago. Yeah. With Ulrich Donkers, with Dr. Donkers, right, and, yeah. and Jane Meredith. Right. I'm John Swenson. I'm a retired lawyer, historian. They say that he was a native of St. Mark, Haiti. You can go to a Mormon family research center. They can borrow the film of that church. The records exist. And then read through it and look for Point de Sable. Now, the reason you won't find him yeah. is because he ain't there. See, at the time that Point de Sable was allegedly born in Haiti, the country was about 90% African and 10% French slave masters. But the French, led by the church, mm -hmm. were interested in saving all souls. So if your mother was a slave, they wanted to make sure you were baptized. Mm -hmm. So if he was born there, there would be a, a record of his baptism. Those records still exist. Mm -hmm. I don't read that Point de Sable yeah. enthusiasts have gone to the trouble of looking at that record. Patrick, there's a book that recently came out about Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable. Yes, it's by Marc Rogier, and it's called Chicago's Authentic Founder. His points were that he may have been the son of Haitian slaves that were brought could be. To, to Illinois. Could be. There's a Francis Renault who was under the company of the West who was in charge of mines, and that he brought 500 Haitian slaves into the Illinois, lower Illinois, around St. Louis area in 1650. But then his only other reference was that Juliet Kinsey mentions in Wabin that Point de Sable was from Santo Domingo. Domin yeah, Santa, yeah. Well, Juliet is about as reliable as a certain <laughs> resident of 1600 Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, back in the studio. John, John's comparing Juliet Kinsey to our current president. Uh, it may be a little harsh. She wrote that book that chronicled early Chicago. Called Wabin, mm -hmm. W-A-U-B-A-N. She's probably not technically a historian. And she was just recounting tales, right? Right. She was capturing these histories that she was getting from her mother-in-law and from other people that grew up and lived in Chicago prior to her coming there with her husband, who was John Kinsey's son, John H. Kinsey. And probably would not have called herself a historian as we know of it. She didn't study historiography at the University of Chicago. Before there's any rules as to how do you do history. Right, because none of that existed. So from a, a pure historian standpoint, she's a lousy historian. So yeah. John's not wrong. However, the context of 1840, 1844, when her book comes out, and she was trying to capture what seemed to be some pretty good tales yeah. about Chicago that is brought down by oral traditions. They weren't footnoting and sourcing. <laughs> That's not at all. Uh, all these sources we have now are not available. And I think that's a valid point. We, we shouldn't judge people of that era using our 21st century um, mindset. Sure. It's not, it's not fair. We can judge the information, but it may not be fair to judge her. Right. right. All right. Point de Sable was probably born in one of the French villages along the Mississippi River. Mm, okay. Cahokia, Kaskaskia. Uh-huh. One of those born into a slave family. From this document, which is kind of vague, but mentions... Point to Sable is along the, from the south end at Petit Detroit. It's the outlet of Peoria Lake, and it's a league long. It goes down pretty much straight south to East Peoria, and then it makes an eastward bend. Mm. Mm -hmm. huh. So he probably came from Cahokia. He must, must have been a really bright guy mm -hmm. because people 
people would have seen the promise. He probably got, got his start at a very young age. He apparently was pretty good with numbers because he was illiterate, but he was pretty good with numbers. And so mm -hmm. he got into trade and probably had some experience, you know, like working in a store owned by a, a Frenchman, and he learned business. Or some trade post or something, yeah. Yeah, probably along the Mississippi River, <clears throat> you know. Yeah. But then I think it, it might be that he migrated up the Illinois River because I suspect that he probably lived somewhere near Peoria because that's where the, the French were, starting with La Salle in 1680, in what is now East Peoria. Yeah. Point de Sable was hired probably a number of times by French traders who had, by that time, they would have been under English law in Canada, who had the official license. Yeah, so to, that then to they trade could, in a they could well, area. and then they could hire people. Very early in my research, I went through all of the the surviving microfilm records of the French fur trade, and there are documents which I found long ago, nineteen eighty five, something like eighty six, something yeah. like that, that seem to see. It's just possible that that he is the unnamed black guy who gets hired by such and such a trader. Okay. As early as, say, 1775, and maybe even earlier than that, but it's not, it's not clear. Point to Sable is... Because he had a Christian name, he would have been baptized. His name was probably Jean-Baptiste, but he didn't have a surname. Indians didn't have surnames, and blacks didn't have surnames, right? Sure. Slaves certainly did not. Yeah. And yeah, Jean-Baptiste. Well, yeah, Jean, because John the Baptist was the patron saint of Canada. So every other French Canadian is, is Baptiste, you know. So, <laughs> so hey, Baptiste. And one of the things that sticks with me is yeah, is the spelling, right? Well, see, and see, Point de Sable, D-E. Yeah, it means sand point. De means of. Yeah, among other things. But remember, in French, it's pronounced de, kind of a you know like de. You know. Sure. Well, an American who didn't speak French is going to put the U in there. Would hear that as a D-U. Yeah. And the yeah, American spellings well, all over. Well, George Rogers Clark, for instance, called it Detroit, D-U-T-R-O-I-T. Uh, it's funny it's because LaSalle is de LaSalle, <coughs> not du LaSalle. Duh. Yeah. Right, it's duh. So it's interesting how they screwed it up in one, one sense and not the well, other. Well, <laughs> if you don't really know the language, yeah. your spelling probably will not be very good. Right. Right. So <laughs> anyhow, point de Sable is a, the Greek expression of a toponym. It's a place name because he was associated with a sand point. I see. See? Mm. Sort of like Leonardo with Da Vinci. Yeah. Because okay. point was part of his name. See, yeah. it's a toponym. Yeah. It means sand point because he didn't have a family name, a surname. So, okay, so what are you going to call yourself? Well, you know, you're in business. You, you've got a last name. It's got to go on your check, right? Yeah. yeah. What's your name? Oh, point de Sable because I'm at this sand point. So maybe, is that describing maybe, that sandbar at the mouth of the river? Well, earlier, he, okay. earlier than that. Yeah. It could be the sandbar over at Michigan City. Mm. It could be a sandbar along the Illinois River. Right. See, because south— that's where I grew up, on a so, sandbar. Yeah, south of Peoria Lake. See, the exit from Peoria Lake is called the Little Detroit. Huh. Huh. It's, it's no. about a league long, 2.4 miles, <clears throat> and it was very narrow in those days. So the water really 
rushed through there. And that was where people lived along that stretch and then around the bend. Because at the south end of that, it makes a 90-degree bend to the east. And that's where LaSalle set up. His fort was there. It's pretty obvious from his documents. And he built this pretty sketchy fort because it was January. The ground is frozen about three feet down. You're not going to build a big fort. Right. You're going to throw up whatever you can. But anyhow, Point de Sable was finally in 1775 got taken in as a, I think as a partner, with two French traders, Durand and uh, Bellot. And they hired him to run their trading post at what is now Michigan City. I never was able to find the, the actual partnership agreement. There were some documents, but, but not... Um, One between the three men together? Yeah, I I looked. See, not all of those documents survived. Sure. Was there anything interesting or details between the the relationship he had with the two other traders that were financed by uh, R.A.L.? Well, I mean, these three guys traveled. Yeah. It's all been published in the Michigan Pioneer Historical Collections. They traveled together for several years from 1775 to 79, and then things fell apart. Below apparently had a trading post on the Illinois River. There's a hill there where the the river turns almost southerly. And he had signed a loyalty oath to the Continental Cause in some encounter with the Yankees. And when the British found this, that was like his death warrant. So he was killed by, I think he was killed by pro-British Indians. But someplace along the Illinois River. Hmm. And Durand is the administrator of his estate. So anyhow, the firm apparently was these three guys Mm -hmm. who were financed by a man by the name of Jean Oria, O-R-I-L-L-A-T, Jean Oria was the wealthiest man in Montreal. He put up the money for Pierre de Rome, Michel Bellot, and Pointe de Sable. And they got the richest man in Montreal is financing him. Mm-hmm. Which is probably no small feat. Exactly. And Oria is not going to put his money into a venture with some greenhorn. In 1775, Point de Sable, he was at Michigan City. Then comes the American Revolution. He's at this trading post with all these trade goods. The British commander, de Peister, who was a kind of a lousy soldier, but he bought the commission, so... <laughs> he hears a rumor that Clark has formed an army that's going to come up and capture Mackinac, which would be fatal to the British plans. So he decides to make a preemptive strike to head off the invading American army under Clark. And so he sends a war party down the lake basically to arrest any Yankee down the eastern coast of Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. They get to Michigan City, and here's this guy, Pointe de Sable. He's probably a French national still, and maybe he is now a British subject, although British laws on nationalization may not be all that clear. But anyhow, these soldiers thought that he he maybe was an American spy. And all they got was one very savvy trader. <laughs> and they picked him up in what we know as Michigan City, right? Yeah, yeah. Where he had been working. Yeah, yeah. That was his trading post, and I was involved in a an effort to find the trading post. 
we found some stuff, but it wasn't his trading post. Mm. So point to Sable. So he gets arrested, bring him back to Mackinac. And then these soldiers, they confiscated all of his currency. And Durand filed all kinds of claims to get his money back. Never did. So Point de Sable is taken back to Mackinac. And is he arrested in 1779? Yeah, he's arrested at his post yeah. by these troops mm-hmm. who were, of course... Uh, British troops, yeah. Well, these the ragtag unit. So when he gets back to Mackinac, then Patrick Sinclair, who was the deputy governor up there, but Mackinac, after a brief interview, realizes this is a pretty important guy because I'm sure Point de Sable could say, well, look, here are my papers, and you recognize this signature of this Jean Aurea? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The, the, the Rockefeller of those days. Yes, I know him. I know who he is. Yes. Yeah. So you're okay. And hires him to manage the pinery, which is a big sawmill on the St. Clair River. And then when Pointe de Sable was shipped down to the pinery, he's got a safe passage letter from Sinclair, and the, the ship captain gets these instructions, take good care of this guy. Oh, really? Interesting. And I've looked at the, the originals sure. in the Haldeman papers. The pinery north of Lake Sinclair is just a little bit south of the south end of Lake Huron. Mm-hmm. There's a big pine woods up there, and uh, I've looked up, and I figured out who was the one of the original Sawyers. And apparently must have been quite charismatic in his abilities. Exactly, exactly. So anyhow, he was then put in charge of this sawmill, which was making the lumber, which became the lumber that built Detroit. Oh, I mm. see. The pinery. Yeah. He was then, by some magical process, a British subject. Well, which it was useful. So well, I, not any useful. It was like like a prerequisite. Like yeah. you also had to belong to the Church of England and all that stuff. Yeah. that was a law too. And he was there for probably a couple of years. At the close of the Revolution, the British. Well, there was a concept which was first French and then British and then. American, to build a chain of posts to guard your frontiers. Right. And so Chicago was a key place. And then, of course, where are you going to build your fort? Mm-hmm. And That's the other story. The British strategy, okay, the Treaty of Paris was in negotiation to end the revolution, and the British figured that they will, okay, we're giving up our claim to the United States, but not really, because if the chance arises, we're going to come in and reconquer the land. Sure. You know, Who so, knows if this Republic they experiment did, will work Which they not. did in 1812. Yeah. But anyhow, it was part of the strategy to keep their hand in, Illinois and, and the upper country. And so point Because they never Sabla, gave, away, gave up all their forts in the great, around the Great Lakes, which they technically should have, right? The Treaty of 1794, this is when the British finally gave up their posts. The Jay Treaty? The Jay Treaty. Yeah. Jay Treaty. They hung on to them until 1796. Yeah. And that was, and then Wayne, of course, that was a consequence of fallen timbers. Patrick, isn't it true that one of the key battles of the Midwest, most people don't really know about it, is the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Chris, you're absolutely right. August 20th, 1794, Battle of Fallen Timbers is the final conflict in this Northwest Indian War between a confederacy of Native Americans and the United States. This took place near modern-day Toledo, Ohio, right? Yes, in Maumee, Ohio. Okay. Which is off of Interstate 80. And apparently sometime earlier, there had been a tornado that cut through the trees there. And so there was this... Fallen timbers. Timbers, trees, that gave the Native Americans, led by Blue Jacket for the Shawnee and Little Turtle for the Miami. And 
British Canadians cover against the United States. And they set up their lines, and there was a wet prairie in front of that that the the American general, Mad Anthony Wayne, who and is, his forces attacked. Isn't Fort Wayne named for him? It is. Okay. It is. The Native Americans expect British support from Fort Miami, which is right nearby, and the British were unable to give direct support for fear that they would start another war with the United States, which they weren't prepared to get into. And why are the Native peoples doing this? Are the great powers of Europe pulling the strings here? Well, the the British are stirring up the Indians, who gave the Americans quite a few terrible defeats in earlier battles. And the Native Americans would like to see the Americans driven down across the Ohio River and reestablish territorial lines, using the Ohio River then as a, as a border uh, between the Americans and Indian country. The British, they'd like to maintain the fur trade around the Great Lakes and use the Indians as a buffer between their holdings in Canada and the colonies on the coast. Okay. And that's happening in Ohio and Indiana. Yeah, and Missouri was Spanish territory. Yes, the Spanish have control over that territory. France acquires it from Spain. So it's really a jigsaw puzzle if you look at a map of the United States during this time. You have the British, the French, the Americans, the Spanish, and they're all meeting at the Great Lakes or along these rivers. Yes, because the rivers are the highways in and out of this Midwest or, or Great Northwest, as it was called at that time. And so the result of this defeat of the Native Americans is the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. And there's also a Jay Treaty with the British that forces them in 1796 to give up their forts around the Great Lakes to the Americans. They'd not relinquished yet. Oh, and when they give up these forts, they give them up for now. They had no real intention of giving up these forts. They were just biding their time. It seemed like it. So, for instance, like in Detroit, just on the other side of the river, they had another fort at Sandwich and Malden in Canada. Right. In Chicago, it becomes an important part of this fortified system. It does. And in fact, it's actually named in the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. The Americans take this six-mile square which effectively takes the land that Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable is living on, which is part of that six-mile square area at the mouth of the Chicago River. Where a fort once stood. Right. which Presumably is a, a French fort. Presumably a French fort, but it actually was not at Chicago as far as we can tell. Right. So anyway, that's the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which leads to the Americans starting to move into Chicago and developing additional forts to protect this territory that they've now forced the Indians to secede in that loss of the final battle of Fallen Timbers and this series of battles that's been going on for about a decade. But any Pointe de Saba was a really interesting character, and he appears in these journals, and there are other guys in there, there's people you've never heard of that you're probably not supposed to know about because there's one guy I think was a a spy. So Point de Sable at this point is a very important businessman, and he's a British subject, and he's trusted by the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. Patrick Sinclair who died about this time. But anyhow, I think Point de Sable was sent to Chicago and to the Fort Dearborn site to establish a kind of a British listening post. It wouldn't be overtly British, right? But it was covert, I think. So let's just pause for a moment. You're saying that de Sable was a British spy. It was a British intelligence resource. (laughs) He wasn't the only one. Would that also explain then how he got set up there in the first place? Because later descriptions of that were as an estate, you know, and he had a pretty good sized house there and oh, yeah. multiple outbuildings. And there was, oh, 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 yeah. there was all kinds of things going on there agriculturally and probably a slaughterhouse and 
you know, a nice house and other yeah, things. Yeah, so, it was it was a complete producing farm. So, so the then British they sold must, their surplus produce. So, are you saying that the British would have financed that potentially? Because where did, otherwise, where did he come up with the ability to to have? Well, that? remember, he was he was the manager of the pinery. Yeah, which right. is a big prosperous sawmill. So he probably saved his yeah. farthings and his pennies and his okay. shillings, a couple of pounds together. here and there. Okay. Yeah. Having been the manager of, of the Crown Sawmill, right, he is definitely a government employee. Sure. Maybe his paycheck doesn't say Her Majesty's <laughs> government or His Majesty's government. But his network of friends are all British now at this point. Well, French too, because yeah. we're in the fur trade. You had a, you know, the people that worked for the British owners were all French. Yeah. Voyageurs. Yeah, they never left and went back to France. They just stayed. And, oh, why go back to France? Right. There's, there's no land there. Right. The soil is lousy. It was better to be <laughs> unless you're growing grapes, which they weren't doing much of then. <laughs> so, anyhow, but he was a British subject when he came to Chicago, and I think he stayed a British subject until probably there was the Jay Treaty. There was another law, 1796 that said, if you're going to move to Canada, that's fine. If you stay here, you automatically become a U.S. citizen. Right, right. You can declare if you're British and then move to Canada, and otherwise it's assumed that you're going to be a U.S. citizen. By operation of law, you become a U.S. citizen. Yeah. So that's how he became a citizen. He was a big trader because I have all these trade documents from William Burnett, and also from uh, Gracio down in, in Cahokia. Yeah, and Burnett was in St. Joseph, Michigan. Yeah, and I have all of Burnett's, the, the surviving trade records. Yeah. And Point de Sable is in there a lot. Yeah. I mean, there are hundreds of entries. And he is usually Point Sable, not, the article is often dropped. Never do Sable, it's always Point Sable. Do you consider uh, De Sable then the very first point to Sable? Point to Sable, the very first permanent. Yeah, you know, Alexander Chicago. Robinson said he was the first non-Indian to settle here. Yeah, probably 1782. Yeah, because there is a journal of a man by the name of Smith, a Detroit trader, that he kept an account with, and the entry for the 25th of December, 1782, has. The ledger page is headed Point de Sable. Ah. And then it says at Chicago. Okay. So that's the first established trade. I I think that's that's probably pretty good. And because remember this French traveler that came through in seventeen seventy four, I mean nobody's here. Yeah. So he was a very prosperous trader. So this establishment in Chicago, he sold it to a a nominee for Burnett. Burnett at the time was broke. Yes, which was uh, Jean Lalime. Well, Jean Lalime was his was his nominee. But th- then there are documents, and I have them someplace in my file, the mortgage and so forth, where finally Burnett took over the ownership. But Point de Sable, when he sold that property, he sold the farm, not the land, because the land was owned by the United States. Mm-hmm. It was a military reservation. But he sold it for 6,000 livres, which is the equivalent of $1,000. Huh. That was then the price of a good established farm in Cahokia. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good operating productive farm. And this was on the north side of the river? Yeah. Cross that was in 1800. Fort- yeah. Across from Fort Dearborn. Yeah, so it'd be yeah. right on the north side of Michigan Avenue today. Kind of where yeah. the Tribune Tower is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Streeterville, sort of. Well, Streeterville is a big sandbar. Sandbar, right, right. Because the, the Corps of Engineers be, built the piers, right. you know. So anyhow, he sold for cash and a load of trade goods, and then he took off down the river, and I think he was at Peoria for a few years. He's probably, again, at Peoria in his old home for a while. 
Mm-hmm. And then about 185 or 6, he moved to St. Charles. Yeah, because he sells the farm in 1800, right? Yeah, because he appears once in the journals of Thomas Forsyth, oh. who was Kinsey's half-brother. Yes, and, and they partner. were partners, and he was had the Peoria That's right, uh, he had post. the Peoria Post. And he appears once there, and it's kind of like the closing entry on his account. Huh. What year is that, roughly? 18, I think it's 1806. Hmm, okay. Interesting. So at that point, he's already in St. Charles. He's already bought a a town lot in St. Charles, I think. Okay. Because the record in St. Charles... In Missouri? Yeah. Yeah. Is probably 1805. It's an old-timer's memory of who lived where and when, and it's called the something minutes. Yeah. And it's from an old settler who knew who was where. So he was in St. Charles, and then his health failed, and he ran out of money, and he bought some bad real estate. It it does happen. Wow, and there was a lot of boom and bust and land speculation at that time, too. Oh, God. And there were lawsuits, and and people recently have found some of the old court records down there, and and Point de Sable was the plaintiff. Yeah. And he died in 1818, and he was buried under the name of Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable by his parish priest, hmm. who surely knew his name, hmm. you would think. Yeah. Right. I have a copy of the burial register from the parish. And we're here with Professor Courtney Pierre Joseph. Dr. Joseph. Dr. Joseph, who is a professor of history and African American studies at Lake Forest College. Yes. And I should say, we were talking before we started, you have Haitian relatives and parents. So, bonjour. Yeah, bonjour. Bonjour. Um, Comment allez-vous? Bien, but see, now we're going to get into the fact that I I know Haitian Creole and not French. Oh, okay. And honestly, a lot of my research I personally did was on this kind of creation of DuSable as the black father Mm -hmm. of Chicago. And that comes from newspaper records, basically the Chicago Defender and the Chicago Tribune, thinking about how people were marking him over time. Where was he coming up? Then the papers of journalists, the guy behind the Defender, Robert Abbott. His papers were a big deal. Claude Barnett, founder of the Associated Negro Press. It was based in Chicago, but it's the larger, um, you know, it goes out everywhere. Thinking about how they talked about or thought about DuSable as connected to Haiti in particular. Mm -hmm. And they do do that. What drew you to him in the first place? Well, um, you know, as many people in graduate school, you need to find that topic for a dissertation. Right. And what originally has drawn me, so I, you know, I teach African-American history, I teach African diasporic history. And my original loves were thinking about activism. And so black power, black freedom movement, civil rights were like as far back, I think, as I can remember. I've loved American history, but mm-hmm. probably like seventh, eighth grade, I was like wow, this is such a cool moment in time. And then that was my plan into grad school was I'm going to focus on Chicago as a site of black activism in the 50s and the 60s. Sure, there's a lot going on here. Exactly, and I was very excited about it. And then I found an archive collection that I was very excited about that I was going to be able to research. And then I found out from a colleague, I think it was like two or three months before I was supposed to defend my prospectus for my dissertation, that a diss had just been published on this very same archive. Oh, my goodness. And I just, I think I cried. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure I cried. And then I, you know, was speaking. Uh, so you were sort part- of scrambling at that scrambling. point, right? Like, what am I supposed to do now? So my partner at the time said to me, well, you talk about being Haitian all the time. Why don't you look into something about... Haiti. And so I was like, well, that's, a, that's interesting. This will maybe, <laughs> let me see. Maybe um, that's an idea. I mean, that's right? a cool idea. Sure. Then I, I just started looking. And again, because my parents are Haitian, I spent a lot of time with Haitian people in Chicago as a kid. And there was never dawned on me that other people didn't know that that existed. 
because it just felt like this was... That's where you knew. That's what I knew. Yeah. Um, and so then as I started to do kind of my own research on like thinking about Haitians in Chicago, I was coming up with zip, like not much at all. And I was like, what? That's weird <laughs> because I know these people, like, you know, sure. I know that this exists. Yeah. Why is there no scholarship around this? So that set me down the rabbit hole of thinking about Haitians in Chicago. And then obviously then the first one who then kind of comes out of that research is Dusab. And then I was like, well, I remember kind of like, you know, being talked to about this guy at a younger age, but it, it didn't even in my mind click as big of a deal as it was until I was doing my own research. Sure. And we do know the other interesting thing to think about is that he's actually not the first Haitian person in the state. Weirdly enough, the first slaves brought to Illinois in the late 1600s, I believe, early 1700s, are from Haiti to work in the mines. Yes, there's like 500 of them that were brought. Yes. This was going back to Rogier's book. Yes, yes. Uh, it's not weird that this man from Haiti would find himself later on in this space. No. That's a later research question for me. What happened to those people? I did that book on Chicago River Bridges. Mm -hmm. There's the honorarium sign on the Michigan Avenue yes. Bridge, and mm -hmm. it's a DeSable Bridge. Yes. And recognizing that it's... It should be spelled D-E-S-A-B-L-E mm -hmm. mm -hmm. instead of D-U, but because the Americans, we don't know how to pronounce French, yes. and my I'm a perfect example since I don't know French for Shinola, whatever, uh, <laughs> had wanted to get that sign updated to you have... wanted to add the point. The point, point, to, to, Sable. point to Sable, actually, yeah. mm -hmm. which, which, means which like sand, was the, was the yes. full last name, yes, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I called the city, and I talked to the, the friends that I have at the CDOT, at the Department of Transportation, mm -hmm. and they said, oh, well, here's, you want to need to talk to the cultural affairs folks, and you should call this person. So I talked to them, and you would have thought I was asking, you know, for his firstborn to change that sign, because I had no idea. I had stumbled into this very political hotbed. Yes in the interest of like the bridges and historic accuracy. Yes. And I know I'm talking to another white person on the phone, but, but they were just like hands off. Do not touch that. You need to talk to the DeSable foundation, the group of friends of DeSable. Yes. And I had no idea because apparently there was a real grassroots effort and political effort through the black community to even get that honorary sign there. To begin with. And so it's been interesting to me. And, and then I came to your talk mm -hmm. at the DeSable Museum about Point DeSable, and it was fascinating to sit in the audience. There was an emotion tied to the whole story mm -hmm. that I didn't get as a white person. But of course, you know, it might be similar if they were talking about maybe Irish history mm -hmm. and then I might understand it, you know, then, then it's a, then it's a parallel that, that, reaction. that would make, you'd get that visceral reaction. Mm -hmm. It's a piece that, that most of white Chicago has no clue about that I thought was really important to the history because for most of Chicago history, Point Sabo was just swept under the rug. Yes. At what point did he came back into the zeitgeist and, and he could be talked about? I think we're still dealing with that to some degree. The classic one that mentions him first is Julia Kinsey's. Sure. And she kind of lays the groundwork for him being this side figure. Her book. Wabin, which what, what came yes. out in like 1844, One of the first one that yeah. kind of sets the foundation again for it being like, yeah, this guy DuSable was here, but... Kinsey, um, and that becomes the narrative. Later, it becomes a little bit more suspicious and is like, there seems to be more to this story of this first settler that we may not be talking about as much. Yes. I argue, based on Mark Rosier's work, also my own work of, of thinking about Haitian people, often what we know about them is through oral traditions. Mm -hmm. And so when you have the story of him being from this island of Saint-Domingue has lasted for so long, despite not ever being written down, that says something to me about who he may have told this to or how often mm. he talked about these sorts of things for that to remain a constant in terms of when we think about him. Because that one reference comes back from Julia Kinsey, who is John Kinsey's daughter-in-law, daughter right? Mm -hmm. But she never met John Kinsey. 
She's married to his son, yes. John H. Kinsey. Mm-hmm. And she talks to Eleanor Kinsey, who's John Kinsey's second wife. And so this is coming from Eleanor Kinsey. And Eleanor might not have actually met uh, DeSable because she didn't come to Chicago until 1803. Okay. And DeSable has left by 1800. About, yeah, about three years. He may have come back. Potentially, but also the people around that are still in the area yes. had to have then had the legacy of who he was and had those connections. It, you know, people talk about their neighbors or who used to move in. You just imagine, you know, like, oh, uh, you yeah. know, do you know anything about They this probably person? still refer to it as the Point de Sable House or exactly. the Sable House or something. So the place, place that right. we think that he is born in Haiti is called St. Mark which is a beach, uh, oh, a beachy okay. area. of. I mean, it's an island, but mm-hmm. yeah. it is on the southern tip um, mm-hmm. of, of the island. Again, I mean, the, the origins are murky, but I, I don't even think they matter as much as the fact that he was just such a genius yes. in his environment. Very much so. I think to consider Dusab is, I think, to consider how people of color, how African-American people ground themselves in their own histories. And for Chicagoans, it has very much been about this figure and whether or not they know that his birth date is not as important the fact that they know that he was here. And what we can probably infer from it, even if we don't really know, is his people were probably from Haiti and whether they were slaves or free, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. But obviously, the Mississippi River was the highway on exactly. which they came up exactly. from New Orleans mm-hmm. up maybe to St. Louis yep. or to Peoria or whatever. Yep. But that was the highway of its that day. many exactly the people mm-hmm. were using. So it wouldn't be random for him to have used that exact same route. Yeah, and he could have been born in in North America to Haitian. It's potentially, but it sounds like, at least again from oral traditions, that he was born on the island potentially to a French father and a slave woman or a free woman of color. Wouldn't there be baptismal records, though? No, not necessarily. I mean, with the church? Because the church was always pretty good about recording that. But he might not have been baptized at you know, early a, in his life. It a, might not have happened until he was true. here in the North America. And, de- and then, so it's interesting to think about that because even one of the records we do have of him is his Catholic marriage ceremony to Catherine. Oh. But we imagine that they likely were married in some sort of indigenous, maybe unrecorded ceremony prior to that. Okay. And then by the time they're able to get to a Catholic church or make that connection, they have a proper Catholic because ceremony. Because okay. her English name was Catherine, but she was from the Potawatomi tribe of this area. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. yes. And then their children are not baptized, at least that we know of, but the first baptism that happens that is recorded is his granddaughter. Oh, I see. Okay. In the home. In the home. In okay. the home. Would that have been here in Chicago? Yes. So it's the first baptism in Chicago. Then. Yes. The marriage happens, I think, Would, in Peoria. Wow. Yes, as well as the first wedding. So his daughter is married in the home as well. Yes. Wow, the first wedding in Chicago was at his home? His house. Wow. For his daughter, and I can't remember the person that she marries. Well, it's, it's the only real house in at Chicago. The it's the largest one, for sure. Yeah. Fort Dearborn isn't even here. Not yet. Wow. Until 1803. In his prime, he must have been an amazing person. He could speak French. He could Mm -hmm. speak the different Indian dialects, at least one or two, Mm -hmm. and probably had some English as well because he's captured by the British during the Revolutionary War. Imagine, you know, he's been arrested during the American Revolution I mean, it is by the British, but it's... For doing nothing. For potentially being a spy. This, again, shows his many friends, is that the indigenous tribes also then sail up to where he is being mm. held and, and you know, with drums and are demanding that he is released because he is a, a good man. And I think within months, Patrick St. Clair, with the British Army, sets him up to run the pinery yep. outside of Detroit, this sawmill. And there's not many prisoners that are allowed to run a pinery. Exactly. Right? To go from a prison yes. to, you yeah. know, like, oh, we're just going to put you in charge of something shows kind of his reputation at the time. So you can only imagine he had to be very charismatic, very clever. Yes. And 
very practical on my top of it. My students often laugh because I call him one of my historical boyfriends. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> he sounds like a good guy to date. A handsome Negro with an yeah. affinity for drink is one of my favorite <laughs> lines of the archive on anyone. I mean, that's great. Um, and that's how he's described. So once African-Americans start to form a larger community in Chicago, it's more of a mass begins with the Great Migration. I think it's Henry Louis Gates who calls DuSable's migration the proto-Great Migration, like the first kind of, when you think about black people's moving from south to north, he's an early example of this. Mm-hmm. And the Great Migration was kind of starting... Nin- the- 1910 to about 1930, Great Depression happens, nobody's doing anything. Um, yeah. And then 1940 to about 1970. A Caribbean and Latin American and African diaspora then reshaped Chicago or other places 1970 onward to today. Yeah, They're starting to kind of look around and say, I've heard this story of this guy yes. who is of African descent like us. And so... The 1933 World's Fair is where there is a larger kind of remembrance of DuSable on a grand scale with the National DuSable Memorial Society, a group of black women who are teachers in Chicago, use this event to kind of wave the banner for DuSable. So they replicate his cabin. It's larger than a cabin. These women had like two weeks or something to build it, put something together, and they hand out pamphlets, and that becomes a bigger catalyst of we need to kind of remember this part of the story. Because you'd be surprised, much like people in Chicago, that there are a lot of Haitian people who don't know about him. Mm -hmm. And then that same cool thing kind of continues to occur of what black people have been doing over the last hundred years is saying, huh, a black guy founded this city. I kind of feel better about being here. Right. 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 And then if if he gets name-checked by Barack Obama or somebody, that... It resonates to a much larger audience. Big time. And I know Michelle Obama has talked about DuSable a couple of times in a few speeches. So he really does become the, if we think about origin myths or, you know, just needing that connection to a space. Yes. He represents that. So there's this cool life that he lives that we at least know a good, I mean, not everything, obviously, that we want to know. Sure. But we know a good amount about. But that, I don't even think is as important to the people in the African-American and and Haitian and just black diasporic community of Chicago is that they feel that connection to being okay or attached to the space of Chicago because they know that this person was the first to do it. Yeah. Again, that's what takes me back to talking about that great migration period because... That's a, a disorienting thing. You know, you come from the South, you're now this rural life that looks very different than what the North is and has all of these promises of, you know, a better life. Some of that becomes quite disappointing for many of the African-Americans who move to, to Chicago and other areas. But then in terms of looking for somebody to look to, Sable becomes that person. And so, like I said, it's really black women and black teachers all the way down to somebody like Margaret Burroughs, yeah. who says, okay, we're going to keep this figure in the African-American imaginary of mm-hmm. Chicago. DuSable High School is the next thing they go after, after the 1933 World's War, based on the momentum, because that becomes a very popular exhibit. Now uh-huh. people in Chicago are excited. Oh, did you know the guy who founded Chicago was black? And it becomes this thing that people are like, wow. It would be revolutionary. Very much so. And so for youth and for, you know, the community as it's building, it's like, wow, this is a really important story in history. Right. So then they go to, all right, well, where else can we put kind of him or this idea of him? To commemorate. To commemorate. Celebrate. Exactly. And so that's where the DuSable High School name comes from. And so they were going to name it after an abolitionist that I can't remember the name now at first, but then the Defender and other, you know, black press are talking about, well, maybe we should name it after... The the Defender newspaper, which was very influential, based in Chicago, but it would go all over the South. All over the South, and uh, and even to Haiti, um, which is part of my research. Yeah, there's a ton of discussion in the Defender about things happening in Haiti. So they are also getting the newspaper there. Ethan McKelly came out with a book on the Defender. Yes. Which is very well huge done. Huge text, yes. 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 Quite in depth. It's a deep dive. It's but it's, a very but it's deep an impressive dive. history of that newspaper and the, the key people involved. 
before the civil rights movement, the Pullman porters were bringing yes. the Defender down the, exactly yeah. the, the Central with, uh, Railroad. Exactly, with A. Philip Randolph and, and such. But The resonance that Point de Sable takes on is really significant. And within. that's where the renaming happens, yes. actually. So it's De Sab. D-E-S-S-A-I-B-L-E-S. D meaning of or from. Yes, desab. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then when they were trying to put it on like a high school, they were like, well, these kids are going to say like disabled or something. They're yeah. not going to get this right. People that's are not, not going to get this right. 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 And yeah. that's going to confuse people. Like, so oh, okay. dusab is what they okay. ended yeah. up going with. So the D-U spelling. Yes. R- there's some real logic behind it. Yes. Rather than, you but know. But in French, the D-U means it's a plural a, of like the, the sum. His last name refers to a sandy point. Yes. So point de sable. Yeah. When people kind of look at me funny, I'll say, well, it's very much like Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. From Le- Vinci. Leonardo did not have a last name. Yeah. And then when he became famous, he had to have a last name. And yeah. so he was from the city of Vinci. Yeah. And so it was Leonardo da Vinci. From the Vinci. Yes. And so the same thing happens with de sable. And I'm sure... You don't mind the fact that we're comparing him to Leonardo da Vinci. There's from, no problem you know, there. It's a nice, no it's a nice connotation, there. right? Yes, yes. The important <laughs> figure needs a last name. The great thing about uh, Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable, I like how you say it, de Sable, de Sable, yes. is he's fascinating. What a crazy life. And he's illiterate, not saying in a derogatory manner, many people were. Most people were at that point. But he was a genius with numbers. Yes. Oh, yeah, he had his own accounting, and he would keep his own books and his own sort of code as a trader. From what we've learned from talking to other historians is everybody thought very highly of him, Mm -hmm. where it would have been very easy to pick on people for their accents or the way they look or the color of their skin. Everybody respected him. What I'm also feeling, uh, having read a lot of the contextual history, was this was a transitional period, and we're out on the very bleeding edge of the frontier, yes. and it's not even a town. It's, it's, it's maybe a small trading post and agricultural center. He's mostly a gentleman farmer, mm-hmm. but then also doing some trade in addition to raising livestock and For crops. business as well. The English still have a fair amount of influence over the Great Lakes, and that's layered on top of what was a French Native American culture, which is really strong in Chicago. And so this is all going on between these different cultures of how they treat people of color or from a different ethnicity. Mm -hmm. A very thorny topic, but I think they're all different. Different, yes. Yes. There were degrees. Some would intermarry in, I think, Spanish culture. Mm -hmm. As well. Intermarriage. The British was, that was taboo. Yeah. Whereas the Native Americans were very much open to the French. The French understood the Indian culture much better than, say, the English, the 1700s, uh, and the British in transitioning over the top of the French. Very late, early 1800s, the American influence started to come in, mm-hmm. and they tend to treat the French Metis community as a second-hand or the redheaded stepchild type thing. Yes. It's, a, it's an Irish person, I guess I can say that. <laughs> I think that's a key to understanding Dusable's success. Like other French people, he knows that the key to success is to connect with the indigenous groups. Like, you know, they know the land, they know the, the weather, they know all of these things. And he does it through one of the most classic ways you do it is intermarriage. I mean... Yeah, he preferred the Native American culture that seemed to be much better. And there were a lot of... U.S. Army people that went native and didn't want to come back where they'd get rescued or supposedly rescued even children that were taken captive. And it was very difficult. A lot of weird, interesting dynamics between the cultures on this time. I mean, I'm just finished watching Game of Thrones and, you know, understanding (laughs) the power of marriage as a way to form alliances or integrate into a society makes perfect sense. Which is exactly what the French did as well with the Native Americans because it was also a very matriarchal society. If you married a woman from an Indian tribe, Mm -hmm. you would then be able to get sort of an exclusivity on the trade with that tribe. Saba was so smart that you mentioned Game of Thrones. He would probably wind up on the Iron Throne. He definitely would. Yeah, he would because he would have it all figured out. He all the alliances, the yes. Lannisters, the yes. Starks, and 
uh, the Targaryens, know. he would be able to navigate that world successfully. Because if you think about all of the players, you know, at that time, like you were talking about yes. this moment of transition, the British, the French, you know, the Spanish are still around, and this guy's able to navigate through all of them. Yeah, again, it yeah. speaks to his abilities, and he must have been, uh, maybe chameleon's not the right word, but the ability to adapt. relate and adapt mm-hmm. to these different cultures as they start to influence the area. This is probably not going to be the same anymore. Yeah. And since the yeah. Greenville Treaty of 1795, they carved out that six-mile square area. The Americans were going to put a fort here at the mouth of the Chicago River. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, we're jumping around here, but John Kinsey winds up buying his house. Buying his house. And his house was fly. His house is very dope. So, yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> it's like considered an, an estate. It's a mansion in yes. many ways you, for the time. And then Chicago Tribune, built, like in that area. On the north side where, of the river. Yep. Yeah. When they describe in the bill of sale, there are these French-inspired doors and paintings in the house. Or that he has a bakehouse and a, some livestock, and then his fur trading business, like all in this one space. I think there's eight or nine outbuildings in addition to the cabin itself, yeah. which we would call it a cabin, but I think it was about 25 by 40 feet square Pretty and large two space. floors. And so it was segmented into four rooms on the first floor, and I'm not sure how the upstairs was segmented, yeah. but that was palatial in those days. Yeah. Right. And, and also, he had gardens and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it know. sounds like it was a full operation. Well, we've talked to John Swenson about this, and mm-hmm. as he describes it, when it sold in 1800 mm-hmm. for 6,000 silver libre, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because that was part of the U.S. reservation. So you were just buying the farm. Okay. Not the land, just buying the farm. Kind of like a condo. So to get that kind of price, it was well-established. Uh, yes. It becomes the Kinsey Estate. Yes. And there's so much drama in this story, but that, <laughs> that Jean-Alim then sells it on behalf of Burnett to Kinsey, but then Jean-Alim ends up stabbed outside the Kinsey estate? He is murdered by Kinsey across the river in front of the fort. Yeah, and it's like... In front of witnesses. In, yeah. In 1812. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the link back to Dusab, and then he's he's gone too. Yes. Well, look at the foresight. You know, he was right. Because he, was. he leaves, and years later... There's a massacre? Yep. I mean, that's a pretty good move. That's a very smart move, and and to think maybe that he probably knew that he would have to choose a side. Yeah, right. Um, So he actually moves then into Spanish territory at that point. He does move into Spanish territory. Yeah. Because he ends up in St. Charles, Missouri. He does. And it sounded like his daughter moved out there at one point. Daughter, potentially the son for sure. Yeah. We don't know what happens to his wife. And we don't know if that's part of the impetus of him leaving. Because there's some rumors that he was trying to become chief of the Potawatomi in the area, and that didn't happen. That didn't work out, but I don't know how, if that was the catalyst for the move. And I've read some things that maybe his wife and son died at that point, but I don't, so... So we think the son may have died in some battle. He's in Missouri, which is the Spanish side of things, or has more Spanish influence, and so he may have died there... The wife may have come with and died or died prior to. We don't know yes. for sure. But then, unfortunately, the last you know years of his life are, are sad. Do we know how old he might have been when he dies? People think he's maybe born around 1745. That's what most scholars kind of okay. estimate. So that would make him 55, maybe in his 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's... an an elderly man in a frontier, so mm-hmm. probably no running water. No, no. So the toll of life, just the grunt work you got to do just it's, to get through the day. Exactly, and consider all of the walking and, you know, traveling he was doing just for his business. Probably a lot of wear sure. and tear on yeah. the body. Yeah. So if there was one particular thing about Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable like people to take away that in order to understand the diversity of chicago the business entrepreneurship bent of chicago get it done no matter what spirit of chicago you have to look at this man who the founder that yeah. he represents and embodies all of those things in a way that now i think set the tone for what makes chicago chicago we have to remember as we continue to enjoy the various parts of the city, 
he laid the foundation for that. Right. Cool. That's, a, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely. Thank you. He did lay the foundation in. Which is sort of the series of this whole yeah. first several dozen or so episodes we wanted to lay out from the beginning up through about the 30s or 40s, this Chicago history in an auto, oh, in a and podcast. And Chicago's like to party. Like, we like our beer, we like our drink. And, I mean, this guy liked his drink, too. So, again, we could just, like, <laughs> point back to him every time. You mean he would have approved of the St. Patrick's Day parade? He would have definitely gotten down with it. He <laughs> yeah. would have been like, green beer, I don't know what that is, but sure. Right. Down right. In the river. Exactly. Not only the perfect symbol of Chicago for the African-American community, but... For everybody. In many ways. That's yeah. what I, I really think he can connect to Chicagoans across different backgrounds for many reasons. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Well, we're thrilled that you came to talk to us. Thank you so much for no, having me. This has been this a great oh, chat. This is, this is always fun. I could do it all day, so I appreciate <laughs> it. And I appreciate talking to fellow history dorks. I always tell my students that it can be cool, okay? Yeah. I like history. Yeah. Thank you for listening to episode eight. The First Settler. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. And how do you say that in French? The, the, the first settler? Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.